Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Stephanie. I've never been introduced as much anticipated before, so I think that's a good thing. So, uh, morning, everyone. Uh, good news, it is still sunny outside. It will be once we're done here, so you will get to enjoy that. Uh, but it's also very nice in here in terms of temperature, and you've got to anticipate me as well. So, uh, I want to start by uh, introducing you to several friends of mine. Uh, the first, um, it's a rather nice picture of here, uh, is uh, Ridian. Ridian, for many years, was a copywriter. He then uh, started writing scripts for films and novels. And after some time and a measure of success, he decided that he wanted to write the story of his family, or at least part of his family, his grandfather and his grandfather's family, who left these shores to go to Germany after the Second World War to help rebuild that nation. Now, typically, when people did that, they arrived, and of course, housing was in short supply. And so they would remove the German family from their own home and put them in billets and the Allied family would move in. Ridian's grandfather felt this was not an appropriate way of conducting yourself. And so he insisted that rather than doing that, that he shared and his family shared a house or the house with, with, with the German family, which is what he did. Now the novel went rather well. They got translated into 26 languages. Publishers only do that when they know that it is selling. And, uh, and then Sir Ridley Scott got hold of it and got hold of the script that Ridian had also produced in the hope of a film. And he said, oh, he said, I think this will fly. Hollywood would love this. And Sir Ridley Scott, of course, is able to call people that you and I aren't. So he called Kira and he said, do you fancy starring? And she said, yes, please. So... It's now in production with Kira Knightley in one of the starring roles. But here's the important thing. The big themes of this book are personal forgiveness, dealing with difference and reconciliation between nations that have been shooting at each other for five years, and nation building. Now, I think you'd agree that these are rather important themes at this point in time, don't you think? In other words, what Ridian is doing is he's using the gifts that he's got. He is essentially a storyteller, and he's using his gifts to work for the flourishing of the world and the thriving of mankind, which is a much under-emphasized and under-appreciated element of the mission that you and I are called to live out. Second friend. Uh, Kat is a banker, she goes to the South Service, and when she graduated and went into one of the biggest and most famous institutions in the city, she thought, what can I do to make a difference there? How on earth, or what on earth can I do as essentially bottom of the food chain to influence the banks? Well, she started by trying to identify a problem. What's wrong with the banks, or bankers? I realize for bankers in the room, I'm on thin ice right now. She thought, Kat's opinion was, anyone who spends all their time with money is in big danger of losing perspective on it. 
And the only way to avoid losing, keeping perspective, I'm sorry, the only way to continue keeping perspective, she knew of, was to give money away on a regular basis. So she thought, I know what. Whilst I've no influence over the bank as a whole, I have on my own cohort, my peers. So why don't we start a generosity fund, she said to her peers, 25 pounds, 50 pounds a month, whatever you can give, and we'll put it together, and at the end of the year, we can give it for social good to a charity. Well, her friends thought this was a great idea. Kat also had in mind that some of these friends would stay at the bank. And whilst they were on relatively modest incomes at present, in due course they would be on anything but modest incomes. And by that point, generosity would be part of who they were. So they started giving, and one of the partners of the bank heard about it, and he said, I'll tell you what, I will match fund, in other words, I will double whatever you guys put together over the year. Then the bank heard about what the partner and the young graduates were doing, and they said, we will also match fund. So that by the end of the first year, Kat's first year in the bank, they gave £1,000 to charity. The next year... Tragically, one of Kat's peers died very unexpectedly. And of course, as is the case in those sorts of times, people respond by saying, we must do something. What can we, what can we do? How do we respond? And they decided that using the model that Kat had introduced them to, they would do that again, but this time they raised £250,000. So one young graduate, in her first two years at one of the biggest banks, help them give away £350,000. Never say you're too insignificant or too small a cog in the chain to have influence. My third friend might be here this morning, I don't know, Heather uh, used to live in a small flat in Bermondsey with twin boys. Well, small flats in Bermondsey are fine, but when you've got twin boys and it's November or February, they're a challenge particularly when it's been raining and freezing cold for weeks. The temptation, of course, as all parents know, is just more screen time. Heather was determined to keep that in perspective and was determined to do other things and decided she would spend her afternoons teaching her boys the stories that had shaped her life. So the living room, the only, I think, living space in that flat, became a lion's den. The two boys became lions, she became Daniel, and she taught them about speaking truth and living with integrity when facing apparently insurmountable levels of pressure and totalitarian power. She didn't use that term. <laughs> the next day, the living room became, and all the furniture in the living room became a rocket and three adventurers toured space. They explored the cosmos and they learned how God had made it all. And we were creatures uniquely made in his image and had a special role in this glorious, remarkable, incredible creation that God has given us. And I'm told that the next day was Noah's, Noah and the Ark Day. It was water play. It was the animals came in two by two. It was Duplo and building of an ark. And how God always keep some to make a difference in the world, however dark it is outside. Now I wanted to start with those three friends of mine 
because or partly because they're so different. They've got very different gifts, they've got incredibly different audiences, and they're living very different lives. But they are all responding to the first call of Scripture, which we're going to look at this morning. We've called this new series, and I'll come back to this later, but we've called it Fully Alive. I wonder what it is that you would need to do or how you would need to live for you to be able to say, I'm fully alive. My observation is many of the people of whom I will tell you stories today, and there are quite a number, are and have been, as they've been living in this sort of way, have been living fully alive. And so these next four or five weeks, we want to look at the question of cultural renewal. We often talk about Christchurch London working for the cultural, social and spiritual renewal of our city. And I want to ask the question, is this really for all of us or just for some of us? And if it's for all of us, how does it fit in with social and spiritual renewal? So this morning, I want to do an overview. Rather than sitting in one passage of Scripture we're going to touch down briefly on a number and I hope that we'll draw a bit of a picture of how it fits in before we get culture renewal under the microscope next week with Andy and we start to look at things in a little more detail. I want to start though in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, here's what it says. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Interesting. Here's what's interesting. God made the garden so the garden must be perfect. Agree? And yet also we're told that the man has to work it and take care of it. How can it be both perfect and need care? Apparently, or essentially, because this garden is alive. So while the garden starts as perfect, it grows and needs careful handling. It needs gardening, pruning, tending. The involvement of those who are made in his image, you and me, or it goes wrong. What an extraordinary tragedy we've experienced this week. And we've, of course, already prayed about it in terms of Grenville Tower. Philip and I drove past it as we drove on the A40 on Friday. And just seeing it in the flesh, if you like, just re-emphasized the utter tragedy of the whole thing. Now, there's many things that could be said about it, but one of them was that, the, the, that was, or the results of, of that, in terms of the, the deaths and so on, was the result of men and women who have not cared for the garden as they should. And when we neglect the garden, tragedy follows. So you've got this perfect garden which is growing. So we have to care for it, but also the other idea that is inherent here is that we have to draw out its potential to make things which haven't been made, but which have the potential of being made. So by Genesis chapter 4, we, hit, we read poetry, we find musical instruments, we find ironwork. Now, none of those have been created by God in Genesis 1 and 2, but the potential for them is there. So part of our calling is to care for the world that we now live in, but also to draw out its potential. And Christians have done this. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, stand in a long line of women and men who have done just that. They've taken the raw materials and they've developed them. It was King James and his advisors 
who created a Bible that was not only in the vernacular, in the English language, but also has shaped the English language more than any other book, except probably Shakespeare. It was then another Christian man who made a dictionary. Well, dictionaries aren't very exciting things, but unless you can define words and you know how to spell them, language doesn't really work, which is why Samuel Johnson, he who loved London, wrote the definitive dictionary that lasted and was consulted for 150 years. It's Christians who've been at the heart of education over the centuries in this nation, saying, no, it is not just for the elites, it should be for everyone. Most of our most significant, most influential universities were created by clergymen. Next slide, please. Corpus Christi, Cambridge, Jesus College, Oxford, University College, Durham, Edinburgh University are all just examples of educational institutions that have lasted centuries which were started by people following Christ who said education matters. We do live for a world beyond but we also live here and our faith has to work here as well as in the next age. It was Christians who embraced their creative ability as a gift from God and created countless pieces of stunning music. J J uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, when asked what his music was for, he said it was for the refreshment of the human spirit. But he wrote at the bottom of his scripts for the glory of God. That's why he did it, to bring our hearts alive and therefore to glorify God as a result. If you're a scientist here, you will know all about Francis Bacon who created the scientific method because you still use his work pretty much every day. He was, one of, he, he was a scientist who actually wrote a personal mission statement. And he said his mission was to discover truth, serve the nation and serve the church. It's Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, who similarly used both his rationality and his faith to serve the nation and Sir Isaac Newton who laid the foundations for the industrial revolution which we have all benefited from and stand on its shoulders. In business, Cadbury created chocolate so that the poor didn't have to drink cheap alcohol. Boots, started, boots were started to provide affordable medicines for those in need and David Barclay started his bank not just to make profit but in order to share funds with William Wilberforce as he combated the slave trade. All of these men and women of faith became known not for criticizing but for creating. And somewhere along the line, that one has got turned round and we become more known for criticizing now than we do for creating. They were creators first. It was Damon of Athens who understood something of this process. Even in the 5th century BC, he said, if you give me the songs of the nation, I don't mind who makes the laws. He understood that creativity and its power shapes our life and then the lawmakers catch up and implement what's already happened as a result. So I, I was going to say start, we're probably a little too far into things to say start, but my question to you is what can you create in your world? Wherever it is, a place of study, home raising the young or the workplace, 
What does your community need in this regard? We start in a garden, and we start in a garden that's alive and needs drawing the potential out of. But not only that, but we find that there is a relationship at the heart of the garden that the Father walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Now, the cool of the day is nothing to do with the time of the day. The word cool is the Hebrew word for spirit. It's actually the manner in which God comes, not the time of day. He doesn't come for a cup of tea. He comes by his spirit to be with us and to be with Adam and Eve, that they would know they are loved. And that's the first thing the spirit does. I remember many years ago having an for me, an incredible experience of God's love, like waves of electricity moving through my body. And when it finished, I, I was like, why? I mean, it's great, but why? And as I prayed and as I journaled, the only thing I ever concluded was because he loves me. I had no idea at that stage. I didn't understand just how important that knowledge is. Would you agree that you're more creative when you're loved? That when you're loved, you are confident and you're more fully yourself? And so the Father comes in the cool of the day by the Spirit, which is why the Spirit gets poured out amongst us. Not only, though, would, does he leave us loved, but he leaves us more able to serve. Just as if we had time, we could go to various parts of the scripture, craftsmen, warriors, judges, who all served better as they were filled with the Spirit. What strikes me, though, is this extraordinary lack of hierarchy between creating, tending the garden, bringing the best out of it, and the relationship with the Father. And you will find people forever arguing, oh no, which is the more important? Well, it doesn't answer that question in these early chapters. It just says they are inextricably linked that you really shouldn't think of one without the other. That if you don't have the relationship, you'll dry up in the end and run out of strength. But if you, don't, if, you, if, you don't, if you have the relationship and nothing to do, then it all goes a bit stale as well. You have to have both of these. It seems to be no hierarchy, just both of them are essential. And so one other question to ask just before we leave the garden. What is the scope of this? What is the scope of this creativity that we're called to? It's very interesting that when we read about the garden in chapter 2, we're told it's in the east. Now, a common misunderstanding is that the garden filled the whole of creation. It can't if it's in the east. I mean, if it's in the east, it's not in the west. Would that be fair? If it's in the east, it's not in the north or the south. It's in the east. There's other creation which isn't the garden, and then we read that there's four rivers in the garden, but they flow out to the rest of creation. Well, I find that very interesting because it makes more, it makes, uh, it gives more clarity to God's command to Adam and Eve at the end of chapter one: fill the earth, increase and fill the earth. And it seems that the idea is that you fill the garden with God's glory. And then it expands. And if there's just a hint of this in Genesis 1 and 2, it becomes evident as you read through the scriptures. As we go on, we find there's a tabernacle that the people of God make and carry through 
the desert. But if you read about the creation of the tabernacle, all the decoration is garden-infused. Garden all the symbols are garden symbols. Why? Because the writer's saying this garden that was static is now on the move with God's people. And then in, one and in the history books, when Solomon builds the temple, again, it's full of garden imagery and sevens. If you read the dedication of the Bible, it's full. The whole chapter's full of seven this, seven that, seven the other. Where did we first read about sevens? It's not a rhetorical question. It's full of seven. Where do we read about sevens? We read about them in creation because now we're being told it's not just on the move, but it's here in the heart of God's city. And then we're told Solomon dedicates it and then it's full of the, gets filled with the Spirit. And it becomes clear that what God wants to do in the garden, tabernacle and temple, he intends to do in due course in the whole world. So the prophet Habakkuk comes and says, surely the glory of God will fill the temple, no, fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. So you suddenly realize the scope of this is global that this is meant to fill the whole earth. And that is why we do not work hard to create Christian counterculture. In other words, we're not trying to create all sorts of artistic endeavors just for Christians. My observation is they don't do very well at filling the whole earth. They titillate Christians or keep Christians going, but they don't fill the whole earth. I think what's better is what a friend of numbers of ours is doing, I bumped into him, this is Raf, he's part of the East service, I bumped into him at Embankment Tube on Thursday evening. I'm just hanging around outside Embankment Tube, as you do, whilst waiting to meet someone. And Raf just appears, he says, hi, what are you doing here? And I explained, I said, how about you? He said, I'm off to an exhibition. I said, oh. He said, my exhibition. I said, oh. And he is an architect. And he's doing his master's degree at the moment. And what they had to do as part of their master's degree is imagine what London should look like in the future. Imagine what London should look like. And, and how can we build it so it contributes to dealing with problems of income disparity, education, health, difference, and all those other things. It's funny, I'm talking to Raph. I think I'm getting more excited about what he's doing than he is. It wasn't the moment to say, Raph, this is part of your mission. But I will tell him that later today when I see him. <laughs> what is it for you? What is it for you? Irenaeus, the church father, said, the glory of God is the person fully alive. What would it take for you to live fully alive? Then, of course... After dwelling in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for longer than we should have done, we then get one more thing. We then get tragedy. Because Adam and Eve, of course, say, we know how to live this life by ourselves. We will not follow the instructions of the Creator. We will take the apple and we will enjoy. Maybe we will become God. And everything that we reap now today is a result of that moment. Fires in Grenville Towers are a result of that moment. Attacks in Westminster, Manchester, Borough Market and Tabridge are a reflection of the brokenness that came into the whole of creation at that moment. 
actually even political uncertainty, local, national, and I don't know whether you've noticed, but internationally things are a little uncertain at the moment as well. It's all a result, in one way or another, of the brokenness that came in, which did not just affect Adam and Eve's hearts, but affected the whole of creation. But what's interesting nowadays is that people aren't saying it's all or rather a mess, we need to get back to God. No, largely, society has given up on the idea of God. There's, there's no even sense that is an option. And in some ways, so much has improved. Well, in this way, and in terms of lifting people out of poverty globally or X, Y, Z, we're doing so much better. Well, we are in many ways, but there's one thing that we've made no improvement on since Adam and Eve took the fruit, and it's managing the human heart. It's managing the human heart. And you could say that as man and woman become more powerful scientifically, economically, militarily, but still have a fallen heart, it makes us all the more vulnerable as a result. So you have to say, who will save us? What can we do? Skipping right ahead now to Jesus sitting with 12, then 11, Judas leaves disciples on the day before he dies, remembering Passover, they're sitting there, they're about to take part in a meal, a ceremony, remembering back to the Israelites leaving Egypt. You will never understand the Old Testament without understanding the huge significance of Egypt. Egypt is the fall worked out. It's man and woman dominating in every way by foreign gods, losing their children, slavery. Every part of life shaped by the fall. And Jesus sits there and he breaks the bread and says, a greater deliverance, a greater forgiveness of sins is to come. Not just coming out of Egypt. Something is about to happen which will so shake the foundations of the earth that the powers of Egypt that still affect mankind today will be turned back. And he breaks the bread and the next day he goes to Golgotha, he goes to the place of the skull, he takes on all the evil, darkness, suffering and sin that has ever been and ever will be in order to break its power. Probably nobody sums this up better than C.S. Lewis and the stories that he tells and the words that he puts in the Christ figure Aslan's mouth. Here's how Aslan puts it as he speaks to Lucy and Susan, the girls. He says, when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards again. And that, Christchurch London, is exactly what has happened. Death is now working backwards, even in the darkness of the present time. And so how do we implement that that has been done one we get to benefit personally but also we get to live that out how do we do it and we often say at Christchurch we work as I've mentioned for the cultural social and spiritual renewal of the city and we've talked a lot I've given lots of examples of the cultural renewal Wherever you are and whoever you are, whatever you're doing, saying, what do I have in my hands? What fish and loaves have I got 
that if I gave them to the master and he broke them, might something wonderful happen? How about social renewal? Somebody said to me recently, said, what, how do I get something started? Well, one way of answering that question is simply to say, find a need and meet it. Find a hurt and heal it. Find a problem and solve it. One of the problems we have right now is the dehumanizing of refugees. Easy, isn't it, for them to become numbers or a problem rather than individuals? There's one individual, young lady, Hannah Thomas. She's been at Christ Church for many years. While she was out in Jordan studying Arabic, started to visit the refugee camps. And she thought that she could use her painting to give the refugees a voice. Maybe we can have a couple of the slides up. You just play them behind me during this next bit. And you'll notice that each of these portraits that Hannah has done from, from refugee camps, both in Jordan and in the Calais jungle, are all face-on. And she said, they're deliberately face-on because I want to give them a voice. I want them to speak to those that are viewing them. And having done this, she was approached by the UNHCR. And they said, would you put together work with refugees for a project for World Refugee Day to bring awareness? Hannah said she would be delighted to do that. Wonderful picture there, if you know Hannah, looking fully alive on her knees there amongst the refugees. What did Hannah do? She took tents, which are symbols of displacement, and she started with the refugees painting them to make them works of art. And she took three themes. And the first theme was memories. Remember what life was like before the war. The second theme was the impact of war. In other words, this is no false, let's ignore reality and just sing together. This is like, here's the impact on our lives. But the third chapter is hope, which is what a resurrected Christ brings to every situation. Brothers and sisters, do not give up hope. Do not allow hope to be stolen in any situation. And that's exactly what Hannah is refusing to do right here. As she works for renewal, as she seeks to bring a flavor of Christ and his kingdom into that situation. And finally, we work for spiritual renewal. And some of you will have been sort of hoping that I would touch on this before we finish, and it is essential to do so. For the heart of everything that we do in the end is to point people towards Christ, introduce people to him. It has to be at the center of everything we do. And so we, as individuals and a church, are always looking for those who God might be drawing and want to explore faith. I was in the foyer not long ago during Lent just before Easter, and a guy came in and he introduced himself to me. He said, hi, he said, during Lent, I've decided, he said, first time here, he said, during Lent, I've decided to find God. Which I thought was a good way of using Lent, if <laughs> you'd not found him. And he said, I've done an Arabic prayer course. He said, I have been to a synagogue and I've had a conversation with the chief rabbi of London. And he said, now I'm coming to church. He said, I've never been to church before. What should I expect? So we talked about that together, and I said he was very welcome and you know, said all the things you'd hope I say. 
And he came in and sat down, and at the end of the service, I'm back in the foyer, and he comes up and he finds me. He says, David, he says, that was amazing. He said, it totally exceeded my expectations. He said, I've never been in a room with so many loving people before. You didn't know you were all that, did you? But that's exactly what he picked up. He said, am I right? He said, am I right in understanding that if I want to follow Jesus Christ, I need to give up myself? I said, well, that is a pretty important part of the whole deal. He said, you are asking a lot. I said, he said, that is a huge leap. I said, well, I said, I'd rather think of it as a number of small steps. He said, oh, he said, I think I could do that. So I said, then what brought you here? He said, friends. He said, I've got some guys I've been doing an art project with. And he said, they come here. So when I decided I needed to find God, I thought I'd come where they came. He said, I don't know any churches. And so I called his friends who come here to this service. And I said to them, I said to them, tell me about your relationship. And the guy said, he said, he said, to be honest, he said, we've become good friends because of the music that we both love. But he said, as we've talked about faith, he said, for me, it's essentially been a listening and sharing exercise. I thought it was a lovely way of describing it. That's what you, we do. We build friendships, then we listen and share as appropriate and as people are ready. And he said that visit to church, he said, has totally changed his perspective on the Christian faith and he is now deeply interested. But he understands the implications, so he's not quite ready to come back yet. Now I got, if you like, a bit of the icing, a great conversation, but I thought it was a wonderful picture of how we're all to live, building friendships and listening and sharing and looking to help people take the next step. And sometimes people say to me, David, isn't there a quicker way of doing it? That's just going to take so long. Well, if there's hundreds upon hundreds of us building friendships and listening and sharing all around the city, then actually what you result with is the largest alpha course we've ever run in the summer. Because actually it becomes something of in incremental impact. And in our last alpha courses, or the ones before that, I'm not sure which now, some friends of ours have come to faith. Now, we've not got anyone, any of our friends on this, but maybe your friends. Because it works together, you see, as we look to introduce others to the healer, the author, the perfecter, the perfect one, who makes all of life new again. Maybe we could have the band back, please. Over these next few weeks, we will return, I'm sure, on many occasions to asking this question. What is it that will make you or me fully alive? Our mission, our calling, is to serve Christ and work for cultural, social, and spiritual renewal. It's a way of saying working for everything. Everything reversing Egypt, getting Egypt out of the world, if you like. And of course you say, well, will that ever happen? Well, yes, one day it will, because he will come back and make all things new. But in the meantime, we take him and his message and we carry it and we share it wherever we go. Let's stand together. Let's just pray and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and rest on us.
And just, just to open your heart, my sense is the Spirit is just is resting upon us. And you were all terribly still while I was preaching. It's like the Spirit was helping us. Now let's just listen to him for a minute. Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence to be poured out upon us. Lord, like Adam and Eve, we need your love and we need your equipping. And I pray for those things. Come, Spirit of God. I pray, fill us and equip us, I pray. Equip us, Father, to serve you with all humility and all love in every community that is represented here. I pray, Father, for women and men from every profession and every background. And I pray for those who are right now thinking, I just don't know. I don't know what I'm meant to do. I pray you give those people peace. I feel like the Spirit just wants to reassure those of us with big questions, be at peace and follow me and I will lead you. Be at peace and follow me and I will lead you. We thank you for your presence, Lord. We thank you for your love. We pray you'd build here a community, deep community, of those who love you, love this city. Pray the city would be better off. We pray for individual lives to be transformed. We pray for the King to get all the glory he deserves. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.